Hello and welcome to the August episode of The Crit, uh, deep in the heart of summer. And she's August the heart of summer. I suppose it's the kind of fag end of summer. Yeah, I mean, the night's already drawing in, which is very depressing. Oh, aren't they? Haven't you noticed? It nope. started... <laughs> <laughs> Stop paying attention around 6pm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's starting to like get a little bit darker in the evenings, which is very distressing. Also, it just hasn't been very summer here in the UK, no. which is also upsetting. How has your summer been? Have you done anything notable? I've actually got back into music festivals, which I, I thought exciting. I was too old for. But... Very young. It's a very young person. I know. I really thought I was done with it. And then I've had, you know, people drop out and offer me tickets and actually getting back into it. It's fun. I do love camping. Camping. I have not camped in years. I don't think I've camped since school and the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which I failed to complete. What what did you fail? Which uh, which section? Mm. Charitable deeds? Yeah, I definitely didn't do any charitable deeds. I don't think I failed my charitable deeds. It wasn't as if like my hand was found in the charity's kitty. That sounds a bit rude, actually. <laughs> um, I think I just didn't do them. I think I lost motivation and stopped. You were just so. there, there for the, the little trip. Yeah, I did the camping section and mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed that. I thought that was quite nice. But no, I should try it again. I think camping looks quite nice. I thought you meant try the Duke of Edinburgh. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's an age cut off, but uh, if you want to. Maybe there is a scheme for 34-year-old men I think <laughs> who that's, want, to, I think that's who want just... to camp and help charities. <laughs> I think that's mainly just like people getting into triathlons too deeply. That's yeah. the thing for men in their 30s. Well, listeners, as you may have guessed from this introduction, August tends to be quite low on design news. Um it, it is a little bit silly season, right? In the design world, nothing, the, the calm before the storm of September. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately for like mainstream news, silly season is kind of dead because this is now wildfire and climate disaster season. But in design, I think still silly season or just silent season. All of our friends <laughs> in Europe are off on their holidays for an entire month. Silent season is uh, a, a really... A really- horrible phrase it it's quite panic inducing silent season yeah. it does sound like a horror film name yeah but uh actually these stories we're looking at today quite serious right these aren't particularly silly no these are very studious and we hope that uh while not exactly beach reads that the industry will take some time to look over these reports because they're pretty interesting should say it's a trio of reports all looking at different areas of design and architecture some really interesting stuff in there and then later in the episode we have an interview with studio dots uh who do some super interesting curatorial work so keep listening and we'll have that in a little bit but let's get on to the reports i suppose so our first report is the urban heat snapshot by arup they're an engineering film. Film? <laughs> They're an engineering firm and they've developed a, a follow-up t- to Oppenheimer. <laughs> they've developed a tool named UHEAT, uh, which measures the urban heat <laughs> island effect. I think UHEAT sounds like a fabulous new fabric from Uniqlo. Like it's, I don't know, a deluxe version of heat tech or something. Oh, yes. Yeah, I it's got what slightly it was. uh Uniqlo vibes to it. Yeah, I actually thought it sounded like um, one of those heat relief gels that you put on for back pain. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. Very soothing. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of them. But deep heat. Yes, like deep heat, you heat. You heat, deep heat. Um, anyway, so this is designed to help map the urban heat island effect in cities. Uh, so that is when your urban areas become much warmer than surrounding less built-up areas. Um, And that can be down to a lack of vegetation, materials sort of trapping the heat, right? There's a whole range mm -hmm. of factors that play into this, but it's down to the urbanism, basically. And so UHEAT uses a combination of satellite imagery and uh, data from Arup's AI land mapping tool, which is called Terrain, and they've used it to find hotspots within urban areas. And from this, they've... produce their report uh the snapshot is highlighting the hottest zones in six major global cities during intense heat waves that have occurred over the past couple of years so there's cairo london los angeles madrid mumbai and new york city 
Um, and it's also not all just bad news. It contains a lot of recommendations for interventions that urban designers can make that could help cool uh, down cities generally and these hotspots in particular. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to do. And I think a timely thing. Um, obviously, with climate crisis, we're very aware of temperatures becoming hotter and cities becoming yeah, you know, at times borderline almost uninhabitable. It suddenly feels very, very strong. Um, and my understanding is that in the past, ways of measuring the heat within cities haven't been the most accurate, right? Or, the, or they don't capture well the feeling of what it's like to be in that city when it's that temperature. Yeah, so you tend to take a surface temperature reading, um, but that won't really account for how it feels for residents and also you can't take a reading in necessarily every neighbourhood mm. whereas this is designed to build in how much an area is built up how permeable the surfaces are how much tree coverage there is how much water there is around what the population density is I mean yeah remember that heat wave we had in London last summer where oh yes I do remember it, it. was just stifling yeah it was sort of over 40 degrees wasn't it mm. it was quite remarkable and you do you do notice because london what well, we record in london london is not a city that is used to that kind of temperature so it, it's not really adapted for it in any way you know in other cities they're more used to temperatures like that and the kind of urbanism reflects that there are places you can go which are cooler buildings are built with that in mind London very much not built to deal with 40 degree temperature. So just became a hellhole. Yeah, I spent a lot of time standing <laughs> in the Sainsbury's freezer aisle. And, and these things matter because, you know, it's, it's not just a case of, you know, a couple of days are uncomfortable. Certain people are really vulnerable to this, right? Often older people, for instance, it can be quite dangerous if temperatures reach heights. So understanding that better and designing with that in mind and mitigating it uh, and having tools and resources that give you the actual information you need so you can adapt uh, designs around that, a really important thing. So, I mean, how, how exactly have Arab done this? What's the, what's the methodology? Right, so they selected a kind of 150 kilometre square snapshot of the urban centres on one day during heat waves, and then uh, they measured the differences between the night temperature and the day temperature because that is how you usually tell whether you've got an urban heat island effect because mm. usually things cool down when the sun goes down but if you've created one of these almost hot domes over an area it stays hot at night so that yeah. is kind of the key indicator and they broke these snapshots up into 60,000 kilometer square blocks kind of by neighborhood so that they could work out which particular areas of the city were getting where is getting hotter mm, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and where also was staying cooler and why that might be so as i said they kind of included things like building height reflectiveness i think it's called the albedo or albedo uh measure so if it's something's white mm. it will reflect light back whereas black kind of tends to absorb the heat mm. the albedo measure would be a very good name for a spy thriller I think you may be scabbing on the uh, sag strike there by coming up with that idea <laughs> and giving yeah, it away for free. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to make hay while the sun shines. Mm. Now's my chance. They also, uh, yeah, so this AI land mapping tool is called Terrain. And that's something that Arup has created. And it quantifies how much green and blue infrastructure you have. So like trees, lakes, versus grey infrastructure, which mm. is your roads, your concrete. Um, they've also factored in a very complex academic model that we won't get into here, but it was devised by Professor Sue Grimmond, and it's called the Surface Urban Energy and Water Balance Scheme model. So there's all sorts of things that have been fed into this model to kind of work out which areas are retaining so much heat mm. and i mean i think it's known that it gets very hot in cities but the findings were quite interesting right i think they found madrid experienced the greatest extremes for instance and one of the neighborhoods in there plaza juan Puyol, um that was found to be 8.5 degrees hotter than the surrounding rural area during a heat wave on 15th of june 2022 and that that's 
staggering, right? An eight degree difference. That's really quite dramatic. And and obviously interesting that they dug into it and figured it out. But I think the reasons why that neighborhood was so hot are fairly commonsensical, right? Very little vegetation, quite built up. So the, the findings kind of confirm what you would suspect, that if everything is covered in asphalt, if you have high buildings, if you don't have much vegetation or green coverage, that area is going to get really, really hot. Yeah, I think I was actually quite surprised by how much the imperviousness of surfaces seemed to directly correlate with these areas. Because, mm. I mean, I know that impervious surfaces are bad, especially when it comes to heavy rainfall, yes, um, yeah. which is kind of connected to rising temperatures because hot air can hold more moisture. But I didn't realise that an unabsorbent ground surface would also mean that places got hotter and that having... And vegetation, likewise, I know, you know, if you have a tree, it creates shade. So that is going to keep things cooler. Mm. But it's actually having the soil in which the vegetation is planted Mm. that's permeable. And that helps cool things down. So I hadn't realised that that was such a big factor. Yeah, I think that's something which you can take away from this report. You know, it's quite top level, I suppose, covers a huge amount of ground. But the recommendations are quite practical and things that, people could easily do right you know it's putting in more permeable surfaces it's retrofitting roofs to be reflective um setting up cooling spaces so some quite practical concrete changes that people could make that would improve our cities a lot yeah and that if they could be implemented at this kind of micro level then that is a very like useful piece of information for the for the local government. I also thought it was interesting that one of their recommendations was that perhaps we're going to have to take on behavioural and cultural changes as well so that we're not operating at the hottest parts of the Mm. day. We could develop a culture of all standing in Sainsbury's Freezer Isle. It could become (laughs) a very deeply important British aspect of identity. Of course, we all gather around the twisters when it reaches August. Our second report moves away from the scale of the city and into the world of exhibitions, but I actually think there is a connection here because, again, it's quite climate-based. This is strategies for reducing the carbon impact of temporary and touring exhibitions in the museums and gallery sector. This is a report put together by Urge Collective for the Future Observatory Cultural Policy Fellowship Report. Lot of words. There. It's it's not as snappy as you heat, <laughs> I have to say. But it's a it's a very important topic that they're addressing and not one that I had really given much thought to. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So Urge Collective, they're a sustainability action group and they've worked with London's Design Museum to investigate the carbon emissions of temporary and touring exhibitions. Okay, it's you know, it's it's not a huge contributor to climate change or anything like that, but this is a world that is notoriously wasteful. For instance, a lot of exhibitions at the end of their life, all the sonography, all of the exhibition design just gets scrapped, similar in a way to trade fairs. You know, people put together these booths and then they're just abandoned. Um, so they've they've dug into that. How can you improve that? How can you make this area more sustainable? And as their case study, uh, quite fittingly, they looked at the Design Museum show Waste Age, What Can Design Do? Yeah, and like you said, It is a notoriously wasteful industry, but um, I think the report is really interesting in that it doesn't just kind of calculate that waste, it goes into the reasons. And so, Hmm. you know, museums are under this big pressure to increase revenue, and that means you need to get more people in the door, you need to get them coming back, and that means a high turnover of new exhibitions. And then also the idea with touring is obviously you want to get your exhibitions in front of as wide an audience as possible. But that is also an income generator because you are hiring out your exhibition to another institution. So these are... Which I think lots of people don't realise, right? Mm. I mean, obviously we know exhibitions travel, but I I think a lot of people perhaps don't make that connection. The museum is selling that show to other people, right? And that brings in income for them when it travels. Yeah, and what Urge Collective have really succinctly pointed out is that these form institutional barriers to making these changes because the 
part of the museum that's responsible for booking those tours is entirely separate from the curatorial team. And that decision might be taken at an entirely different point to when an exhibition is being commissioned. So none of the sort of dots are joined up. And because they're having to produce at quite a high rate um, and the budgets are set for each exhibition separately, there's no impetus, there's no incentive to be like, oh, well, we could use this and then the next exhibition can use it or we can reuse this Mm. from this exhibition we did last year because you just need to get it done and your budget is your budget and you're going to contract it out and whoever can produce it for you at the lowest cost or the highest speed is who you're going to go with. Yeah, and I mean, this is true of all exhibitions. I think this report is relevant to museums the world over, no matter what sector they work in. But especially important for a design museum, right? Where a lot of the time they are talking about waste, they are talking about sustainability. And as part of that, you would want the way in which their exhibitions are put together and conceived of to be well designed as well, to have that kind of joined up thinking of, okay, well, we're using this kind of sonography, this exhibition design, what can be done with that? What happens to it in its afterlife? So Kudos to the Design Museum and Future Observatory for doing this, because I think it is a really important thing for particularly design institutions to engage with and maybe lead on a little bit. It's it's systems design, basically. Mm, yeah, and like the changes they made for Waste Age, some of them were really kind of small interventions. Like they were like, oh, instead of putting vinyl stickers up on the wall for your signs, why don't you print directly onto the wall and then you're kind of creating less plastic waste uh and then also calculating how much carbon it would take to bring over a big exhibition piece from ghana but if you save on other bits of carbon then you can spend your carbon budget on something that's important so i thought it was really interesting to uh yeah kind of see behind the scenes yeah yeah I, I think the thing I really like about it is it the sort of realism you talked about earlier mm. so often with exhibition design I, I'm not knocking this it's well-intentioned but you get a sort of oh yeah to make this exhibition more um, sustainable we've printed all of the texts using seaweed <laughs> or um, actually all of the things are made from this special honey material <laughs> that's more so what's quite nice about this is they do look more at kind of budgets and things like that and those institutional blocks and, and try and reconcile the two I mean one of their suggestions and I think it's a very good one is that museums should set carbon budgets Um, at the same time as they set their financial ones. So then you can re you can prioritize reusing materials for instance because you're planning out what you've got you've got your financial budget what's achievable within that and you've got your carbon budget what's achievable within that and I suppose it's that creation of a kind of parity between the two and say yes these financial considerations are massively important so are our environmental considerations what's the best way to reconcile the two and I think that's a very positive aspect of it yeah because the feedback they'd run some workshops as well and people had basically said uh one of our success indicators is not how green we make a how green we make a show that's kind of a nice extra but if you set that in stone along with coming in on budget and getting a certain number of people in that means that people will be recognized for making better choices mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think it's the only way you can do it if you just treat this area as it is as important as these other things you need to factor it into the design the, s- the system is more complicated than we have previously treated it as being and once you start planning then you can make some improvements. And one of the other really nice suggestions was they are trying to put together a pilot scheme whereby multiple institutions could set up a sort of shared bank of exhibition. Did you call it sonography? Is that the word for all the kind of the walls and the the bits? No, I don't know. <laughs> no, that sounds like, it sounds <laughs> yeah, like the proper like word. Exhibition design, like the material. I guess it is a kind of sonography. Yeah, so they, their idea was that everyone could kind of put their unused stuff into a bank that everyone else would be able to draw on to kind of, yeah, create a nice little co, co-museum design.
Hello, Crit listeners. Just a brief interruption to our regular programming. I'm delighted to let you know that this episode of The Crit has been sponsored by Maison and Objet, one of the world's premier trade fairs for the design and interior architecture industries. Good news, the fair is set to open its next edition at its home base in Paris Nord Villepont between the 7th and 11th of September 2023. With the celebratory theme, enjoy, the fair promises to be a buffet of pleasures. Expect an endorphin-filled experience with displays of colourful, audacious, humorous design in all shapes and forms, as well as an exploration of how design and well-being intersect. In addition to Maison and Objet, visitors can also find further sources of entertainment and insight at Paris Design Week, with hundreds of places to visit around the city from the 7th to the 16th of September 2023. Early bird tickets are available until September the 6th. As an added bonus, your ticket will give you six months of access to the Maison and Objet Academy, where you can rewatch all of the conferences from the fair. If this all sounds too fun to miss, visit maison-objet.com to find out more. That's maison-objet.com. We'll see you there. And so rounding out our trio is a, a return to the cities, but with a slightly different angle this time. This is the Building Safer Cities for Birds, which has come out of the Law, Ethics and Animal Programme at Yale Law School with help from the American Bird Conservancy. Yeah, so this is looking at a phenomenon for which I think there is increasing awareness that a lot of the buildings we have in cities are not very safe for birds. The glass confuses them and you get a lot. Is it bird strike? Mm. Yeah, bird yeah, strike. And that's definitely what happens with aeroplanes. Yeah. Did you know uh, I was once in a car that was hit by a bird, by a crow? Oh, no. It was very sad. Um, picture the scene. A young Oliver Stratford is in the back of the car, maybe eating a sandwich. He's on his way home from school. In the front of the car, a slightly less young Thomas Stratford, his brother, gets front seat. Anne Stratford driving the car. Suddenly a crow from nowhere. Let's call him Graham Stratford. <laughs> Who adopted the crow uh, and then murdered him. <laughs> we, we, we did in Graham. Suddenly, out of nowhere, crashes into the, uh, crashes into the uh, windscreen. Bounces off. Did it? Chip the windscreen because hitting an I mean, and a crow is hit, quite big. Yeah, if you hit a deer, that's game over for the it, car. It left no mark, which does make me begin to wonder if I've imagined the whole scenario. <laughs> oh, because an owl once flew into the window of my grandparents' ground floor. Uh, the owl was okay, but it left this kind of ghostly imprint of like an owl squished up against the window. And that's one of the oh, memories yeah. of my childhood. Well, it does leave an imprint. Uh, it, it, I mean, we're being a bit flippant, but it is a genuinely sad phenomenon. And it, it happens a lot. A huge number of birds die each year because the materials from which we make buildings aren't really recognisable to them. They confuse them. So they hit it. And, you know, if a bird is flying and hits a building, breaks its neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this report estimates it's one billion birds a year are killed by building collisions. Madness. And that's like up to 10% of America's bird population. And also, I didn't realise until reading this report, I thought it was the sky being reflected in the uh, glass that confused them and they thought it was free space to fly into. Mm. But it's actually if it reflects trees and shrubbery and sort of nesting sites and that's why they fly into it because they think it's somewhere to land oh so they think they're they think they're flying into a nest yeah, and they're actually yeah. flying into the chrysler building or similar yeah well, yeah i mean i think it's not great to build loads of shiny glass towers anyway because then you're getting in the way of migration routes mm, mm. but it's also ground floor levels and it's not just the glass it's the decisions around your landscaping and also Lighting, like yeah. what sort of lighting you've got behind that glass that all plays into these these factors. Yeah, so I, a, a very specific problem. This is something that does need to be address, addressed and looked at. But I, I think it also ties into this wider move within design and architecture where you see an increasing number of projects and a lot more discussion around this idea of post-human design or whatever you want to call it with this recognition that the systems, the objects, the buildings, whatever that we design in the past have been very geared towards uh, human utility, designing things that are good for people and which meet their needs. And increasingly there's this awareness of, well, that's too narrow a perspective. We also need to be looking at how these things 
are affecting uh, non-human animals, how they're affecting landscapes. So when you're designing a city, I, you know, this I'm putting it very crudely, uh, you do need to think about birds. Okay, this building works for humans, that's really good, but how is it designed in relation to the rest of, you know, creatures in this city? How does it work for them? So some some broader connections to more general discussions within design alongside this specific issue, I think. Yeah, it really reminds me of that interview you did with Daisy Ginsburg about designing a garden for pollinators mm, yeah. and how it might look for insects. And one of the things the report talks about is, say, ground level shop fronts, which obviously want big windows and lots of lighting to welcome people in. But yeah. that's really bad for birds. Uniqlo wants to show off its new U-Heat collection <laughs> and its superior <laughs> Japanese fabrics (laughs) but it also plays into this um yeah while you don't put a human centric focus onto it it can also be mutually beneficial so the report really wants to underscore that bird-friendly design solutions are often very sustainable solutions so if you use fritted glass or uv patterns or any sort of kind of photovoltaic glass these are also reducing solar gain as well as alerting birds that this is a solid surface yeah quite attractive as well (laughs) i mean not the most important factor but those are nice things right this is this is not a difficult problem to solve i suppose is what this is getting at there are good workable practical kind of cheap solutions that make a big difference mm-hmm. and which we should be taking and it's also something that can be done for retrofitting which i think is yes. important it's not just about only having new buildings built to be bird friendly um but one of the issues the report highlights is that in america there is currently no sort of state or federal level regulation around having to be bird friendly. They are for states that have introduced some legislation for kind of public and state buildings. So Maryland, Maine, Illinois and Minnesota. Uh, And also at like a local level building, um, cities have begun to adopt these policies, but they kind of want to suggest that uh, perhaps there could be some policy changes happening at a sort of higher up level. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the way you're going to see lasting impact. But to, to loop back to what you flagged up before, that changes that which are positive for birds can be positive for other creatures as well. You know, loop these things together. If as part of sustainability policy, you factor in, oh yeah, and these changes, buildings need to be bird friendly. It's very easy to do, right? It's a pretty straightforward and mutually beneficial change. Yeah, and the the two biggest barriers that the report highlights were uh, cost and aesthetics. So this is definitely something for architects, designers, glass manufacturers to rise to the challenge of making sure that these options are available and factored in at the design stage. I mean, that's our trilogy of reports completed, but we also wanted to flag up a couple of projects and products which we found interesting and just wanted to uh, shine a quick spotlight on. Uh, the first is Bilboquet, or Bilboquet. 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 It's French. <laughs> Bilboquet. For, for Bilbo, why? <laughs> que Bilbo. Que Bilbo. <laughs> uh, this is a lamp for floss by the designer Philippe Mawin. And it was shown at uh, Milan earlier in the year, but is now launching this autumn. And it's a really nice lamp that's built around a kind of magnetic ball joint. So Mm -hmm. you have a base into which this magnetic ball sits. And then the lamp head, through the power of magnetism, connects to the ball. And then you can roll it around so you can direct the light as you want. Gives you a lot of flexibility, means you can use it as desk lamp, reading lamp, an uplighter. Um, and I think it's just quite an ingenious solution. I think it's a really nice way of doing it and quite a fun backstory as well. It's such a fun take. I mean, the you'd think trying to reinvent the angle poise would be like reinventing the wheel, but it's so satisfying. And you can also take that lamp off the magnet entirely. Yeah. And um, Mawan has said that he was really inspired by... A bilbaquet, which is a cup and ball game. So, you you know, you have like one of those little sort of like cups on a stick and then there's a ball attached by a string and you kind of flick it and waggle it around and try and catch the cup 
they catch the ball in the cup. Yeah. Apparently very popular with uh, Henry III, I believe, a 16th century French king. Um, but it's very like fun and playful and also very nice that they've done it in lots of bright colours. Yeah, yeah. We actually have a short piece on this in the new issue of Desenio, which we'll be talking about soon. Not quite yet, but soon. Uh, which our colleague Evie Hall, producer Evie, wrote. And that goes into a little bit more detail. And I, th- I think one of the things I found quite interesting in which Evie's story talks about is it frames lighting design in terms of generational differences. Mm. So Bill Bouquet uh, is, is, is a lamp designed for millennials and Gen Z, basically. And I mean, India, maybe you can you can tell us yeah. why that is. What makes it a Gen Z lamp? This is kind of the depressing part. This is not the fun little cup and ball game. Uh, basically, Malan was like, it's for someone like me who is renting and has to move frequently. So every time your landlord raises your rent, as my landlord has just done, you can pack up your little light and toddle off to your next overpriced house. But at <laughs> least you have a very fancy lamp to make you feel better about it. Yeah, it's small pack. And I, I think the other thing is because of the flexibility of that joint, it can play the role of multiple different mm, lights. Mm-hmm. So, okay, it, you know, it's a floss lamp. It's going to be expensive for for lots of people. So this is somewhere around two fifty pounds, something like that. That's not precise. Uh, that's a that's a big investment. But you know, if you're spending two fifty pounds and you're getting a lamp which you can then use in lots of different ways, that's probably more cost effective than say, okay, well I've got my desk lamp. Um, I need uh, I need an uplighter over here. I need something like this and that. It's an attempt to design something a bit flexible, a bit portable. So okay, uh, you know, a, a not inconsiderable initial investment. But then you have a lamp which can play multiple different roles. So quite quite a nice story. Quite quite a nice story within a wider depressing framework. Yeah, I mean, it's like you think of cost per wear for clothes. Maybe this is cost per light. So obviously we've uh, been following the women's football quite closely here at Desenio. Uh, the, the Lionesses, they did well. They did, they did well. very well, you know, to get to the final, mm-hmm. having, having won the Euros very recently. It's uh, an impressive time. Yeah, they did us proud. Um, so this is a little bit of a congratulations, thing. Spain. <laughs> so Walthamstow FC, uh, they're a North London football team. Uh, they have created a new home and away kit, um, and they've gone kind of old school with this. Walthamstow is the um, the childhood home of William Morris, uh, who was a kind of pioneering member of the arts and crafts movement. Yeah. Did lots of lovely floral patterns for kind of textiles and wallpapers. And um, his old house is a museum in the borough. And so they've collaborated to kind of digitally redraw this print that was made in the 1890s by the designer John Henry Durl. Deal. Dearly. Durl. Durl. John Henry Durl. I mean, I don't um, know the Dell family. It could be Deal, but I, I would say Dell. Mm-hmm. So he studied under J.H.D. <laughs> really going for the acronyms this week. Um, and it's a pattern called Yare, uh, and they've done it in like a lovely blue for the home kit and then in a more kind of tapestry, multicolour for the away. It sold out on its first run. And- I mean, it, it's beautiful. And that's that's an exciting thing, right? Like, it's really nice. Use the popularity of football. It shows Morris's work quite widely in a really fun and accessible format. It's, it's very difficult to dislike. I think it's a great project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a real nice mix of arts and sports. I don't think you normally get that kind of thing on a football shirt. I mean, I defer to your superior football knowledge, but... I mean, you get you get patterns and things like that, um, but typically they'll be it's come through one of the big kit manufacturers like Adidas or Nike, and it will be we are honouring the industrial uh, heritage of Manchester by including um, a map of Manchester's canals subtly in the background as a pattern. It, it's not you don't get so much this sort of um, we're showing the work of this mid-century designer say on it so Mm -hmm. you you do get some things like they're obviously designed and you obviously get patterns in that world but not quite in this way yeah and also a nice 
part of the project is that they are using part of the profits to fund their women's football team, which is an issue that was covered uh, by Lara Chapman in her piece Pitch Dreams, which we published in Design Review 2, which is still available Outstanding on Outstanding piece, looking at a lot of the barriers to entry um, for uh, women's football and sort of design design and its relation to those. So that's looking in terms of access to facilities, ways in which leagues are run and so on. So yeah, funding uh, funding women's football is a noble pursuit and great if William Morris can do his part. It's yeah, about that... <laughs> time, Morris. I'm delighted to say that our guest on The Crit this week is Olivier Lacroux, who is one half of Studio Dots, a curatorial practice that Olivier founded with Laura Drouet. Olivier has come on to talk about the school of phyto-centred design. Uh, For anyone who hasn't heard that phrase before, uh, phyto-centred means plant-centred. And this is a summer school that Olivier and Laura are running at the Kunstgewerbe Museum in Dresden, Germany. And... Dots for quite a long time have been a really interesting practice because they're very interested in designs, social entanglements, its political entanglements, environmental, ethical. And the principal way in which they've investigated those is in terms of design's relationship with plants. So whereas traditionally the field has viewed plants as material, a resource that we can harvest as we want, Olivier and Laura have been interested in this idea that, well, actually we need to nudge our relationship with plants and think about What's to their benefit? How do we interact with them? What is potentially a healthier relationship we could have with them? Um, The summer school is an opportunity to explore that concept in a little bit more depth. And they're running workshops, classes with people from all around the world, different fields with an interest in this area to come together and work on this issue. This is an ongoing process for DOTS, so I think the the project they've worked on, which perhaps people are most familiar with, uh, particularly if you're a Decenio reader, we featured a roundtable about it in Decenio 31, is the exhibition Plant Fever, which again, they set out their ideas around design's relationship with plants and how perhaps that has needed to change for a long time, but particularly now in light of climate crisis and a variety of social issues. So really pleased to have Olivier on to talk about the School of Phyto-Centred Design. Uh, the conversation I had with him is about to play now. Hi, Olivier, and welcome to The Crits. Nice to see you. Hi, Oli. Thanks for inviting us. I'm alone here today. Uh, Laura, my partner, is busy with the workshops we're running, so she says uh, hello and sorry, but uh, I'll try to yeah, make up for the loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice that the work we're about to discuss is actually in progress at the moment. So this is the summer school uh, at the Kunstgewerbe Museum in Dresden, and it's part of the annual program, I believe, called School of Utopias. And your particular edition, for which you're head of schools, is the School of Phyto-Centred Design. Uh, but maybe to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about what the School of Utopias program is? So we were invited by Thomas Geisler, the director of the Kunstgewerbe Museum here in Dresden, to lead this or curate this third program of School of Utopias. The School of Utopias originated in 2020, if I'm right, uh, out of the desire of creating a platform inside the museum to create new knowledge or question uh, what design making and design thinking means today. Uh, and they've been doing that by also putting uh, out, let's say, the collection of the museum and asking tutors, so designers and theoreticians, to question the way the museum have been collecting these artifacts. So we were invited to curate this third edition that we conceived around the touring exhibition Plant Fever that is currently on show here at the museum. Do you have carte blanche to make that school of utopias about any topic that you want? I mean, obviously, (laughs) assuming it fits the brief, but this idea of phyto-centred design, which for anyone who doesn't know, refers to plants, that's that's come from you. Yes. So Thomas Geisler invited us with the clear idea of accompanying the exhibition, which is on site this year, but also next year. So the idea with the summer program is actually that whatever comes out of it uh, in terms of outputs, in terms of ideas, but also physical artifacts uh, might enrich next year's edition of Plant Fever uh, here at the museum. So it's really a way of crafting a summer program around something that already exists, but also going beyond that and inviting the 
the participants to reflect on what has been exhibited and also the botanical garden because we're actually in a museum that is a former royal palace set in a beautiful botanical garden um, that of course can be questioned as well because the same way we collect objects in a museum is the same way we collect plants in a botanical garden. So in our perspective, as we are very much interested in, in plant uh, as storytellers, in plants as the starting point for design discourse, uh, we took both the collection, the applied art collection of the museum and the botanical garden as references for the workshops here. Well, let's drill down into that interest in plants a little bit and why specifically plants are interesting for design, because this is something which has been a theme in your work for quite a while. You've done a, a huge number of interesting projects around this, and we'll include those in the show notes for anyone to take a look at if they want to. You, you note, for instance, that design historically has been very human-centred, right? It's concerned with human utility. It frames itself often as problem-solving, and those problems tend to be human problems. And instead, you're presenting a view which is shifted, and which says this historical relationship we have with plants, where they're seen as material, as resources, as things to harvest for human benefit, uh, that that's not right, and we need, we need to adjust our relationship to it. Why plants? Why did that strike you as this is really something design needs to get to grips with a bit more? What we realized in the, in the research we conducted for now, well, Laura started in 2017, so it's a seven-year addiction so far. Uh, it's the idea that design uses a lot of plants. And design taken as a broader action that humans do uh, within the planet we inhabit. Uh, plants are the, the architectures we live in. They are the textiles we dress ourselves with. It's the food we ingest. Uh, without plants, we couldn't breathe. It was plants that transformed the atmosphere that is present on Earth into something that we could breathe. Uh, and thanks to them, we're here. So that was the starting point. The idea that without them, we would not be here. And the idea that uh, by designing through a human-centered perspective, maybe uh, we've come to the point where we're at now. The climate change that is probably mainly <laughs> human-driven, uh, overconsumption, overproduction. And so what we were trying to do with this idea of shifting from a human-centered to a plant-centered perspective was to question the centrality of humans. And when we talk about human-centered, usually it's male-centered and white-centered. And so shifting the perspective from the human is actually enabling you, enabling you to talk about design from an other-than-human perspective, which then goes even beyond this male and white perspective, because plants are uh, also the links between different human communities. And so by looking at the plants, you're looking at where the interaction takes place and where uh, damages were done and where uh, reparations maybe could happen. So that was a bit the thinking and also the idea that was nourished a lot by recent research in the scientific and philosophical fields where we're starting, restarting actually, to look at plants as sentient beings, as beings that inhabit the world, that design the world, as Emanuele Coccia, the Italian philosopher, says. So the, the idea of shifting the perspective is really an invitation to not put the human aside, but to realize that humans are part of a wider web of connections with the beings that inhabit with us the, the planet. Mm. Uh, and we think that designers and artists can have a say uh, in that conversation. Uh, and we had a, a fantastic conversation uh, on Monday, two days ago, with philosopher Michael Marder, whom we invited to give a speech, uh, a talk in the frame of the school here. Uh, all these scientific and philosophical thoughts are actually sometimes very hard to grasp. Even the, the fact that plants are living beings and they're not simple materials as we are used to consider them. And through an art or a design act, through an art and design object, we can render that graspable, that tangible. And it's a conversation that we had with Michael where he was reaffirming the necessity of scientists and philosophers to work with artists and designers. And uh, yeah, we agree on that. And we agree on the idea that we should dismantle the boundaries between disciplines and work more and more together as designers, curators, uh, scientists, philosophers, gardeners. What kind of reception has your thinking around this had within the field? Because on the one hand, I think there is this growing interest in more than human design, post-human design, how, uh, quite a few different phrases for that circling round, but there does seem to be a groundswell of interest in it. At the same time, I think as you alluded to then, it's not so long ago that people saw plants as, you know, somewhere between stones and animals, that they weren't real beings. And, and obviously the science and philosophy 
philosophy around that has changed a lot. But I think within design, there still is that relationship with plants and materials. Like you said, it's textiles, it's timber, the leaves are used or, or whatever. How have practitioners received your ideas? Is it an easy sell? Is it something you have to work quite hard to get people to think about this and take an interest? I think that there are uh, two ways of receiving this kind of provocation. There are people like Fernando Lapoz, with whom we had this beautiful conversation that was recorded in, in Diseño a while ago. Yeah, he's one of the teachers at the School of Utopias as well, right? Yeah, exactly. He ran a workshop uh, uh, three weeks ago now. Uh, but the way he, he puts it is also an admission to the fact that as humans, we came to domesticate plants and use them for food and also for materials. But by making that admission, he's also uh, going back to look at how people, and he's referring to Mexico because that's where mm. he operates and he's from, uh, people from there used to have a stronger connection and more intimate connection to these plants and were able to respect them for the next harvest, for example. And that is something that we've lost. And so by, by suggesting a, a plant-centered perspective on design, we're not saying that we shouldn't consume plants because otherwise we are left with not much to eat apart from stones maybe uh, or dress ourselves or be or build but the idea is really to go back to a more responsible relationship with these beings so that's a way of taking it and of course the other way is by really exploring through design and art what it means to be another other than human being and there's a, a bunch of contemporary designers that are doing that uh, in very speculative ways but also in very scientifically uh, driven ways and so there's probably there's no one answer to the question, but how it was perceived, I think that more and more we're getting uh, contacted by schools and uh, by groups of students. And there's a lot of students that have been investigating and inquiring into this topic. Uh, I don't know if it's thanks to plant fever, I, I cannot make that assumption, but it's certainly part of a broader questioning, at least in Europe, in the Western way of teaching design. We're contacted more and more by schools to give workshops, talks, uh, to inform the practice of design from this uh, perspective. You mentioned a lot of practitioners working in this way and doing interesting work. Fernando is clearly one with his, uh, I think the project most people will know is Totamoxtel, which is working with corn husks in Mexico. And he's using that as a material, but very much tied in with social relationships within a town, within historic connections to corn species and so on. Who, who else do you see as doing interesting work in this area? Who should listeners be looking to? I will refer also to the school here. Uh, we've invited for the first week of the program Emma Bruschi, who's a French fashion designer, who started to work not so long ago. She's pretty young. Uh, but she became known through a collection of garments that she created out of straw. And straw is an old material. She's from the, the Alps, the French Alps. She went back to the understanding of that matter and that plant and also the techniques that were used, the folklore that went around the, that plant and that crop. And um, she's been working with her family farm. So going to her uncle and saying, can we cultivate a field to do some fashion experimentations? And so the, the work she's been doing, it's very much rooted in this idea of designers being also steward for, for the land and working with the seasons. So that's very interesting. Uh, not working against the seasons, not overproducing, not over extracting, but going with the seasons and having an understanding that what I take out of the soil, I have to input something if I want next year to have a, a harvest through which I can develop my design. And that's, I think, it's something that we've seen that is becoming quite embedded in a lot of young designers, whether they work with new biomaterials or whether they be um, designers that are more speculative. But this understanding of re-understanding of natural seasons as the rhythm according to which we should design and produce is something that is, is becoming more and more of a norm. Our view might be biased, probably, because we are focusing on that kind of approach, of course. But uh, it's interesting because there are companies that are also kind of contaminated by those thoughts and that are trying to do that. Uh, I mean, a, a very far example was Alessandro Michele uh, with Gucci uh, in Italy, who questioned this idea of having uh, fashion shows uh, so often, you know, and, and going back to a relationship with fashion that is more tuned to the, to the mm. seasons, to the natural rhythm. And I think that that's already something. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's... It's already there, mm -hmm. and uh, we've seen that by overproducing, overconsuming, 
we've populated our interiors with also disposable objects uh, that are uh, the results of fashions, of uh, trends. And going back to a more attuned relationship with, uh, with the seasons and the world and understanding what you extract, you have to give back. It's something simple but very powerful. How practical do you see it as? Because I, I suppose that the program is titled School of Utopias, right? And that, that's obviously a valuable thing. But one of the um, complaints that often gets thrown against, you know, designers talking about more than human design is, well, yes, this is all great, but it's very utopian. How do you actually make this work in practice? How do you respond to that? Do you see it as utopian in its ambitions, but is it over ambitious in terms of what can be practically achieved? I think we always need examples. And in moments of crisis, we need people that think out of the ordinary. Uh, when we look at the current situation, uh, we have climate uh, problems, we have social problems. And if we carry on with the same structures, the same patterns, the same way of thinking, we stay stuck where we are. And so looking from a utopian perspective or someone who can think out of the, of the box is, is very important and having spaces for that to happen, I think that's very important. Whether they be summer schools or exhibitions or theaters or, I mean, even the civic space, the public space can be such an environment where these things happen. I mean, this, this idea even of phytocentric design comes out of the, the discomfort uh, that uh, probably we are living in, the, in this design world as researchers ourselves in, in, in the first person. And um, trying to look at beyond what's already there. And then, is it utopian? Is it not utopian? I mean, if I look at wood production, for instance, and, and uh, Cambio by Forma Fantasma did the, uh, the, with the Serpentine Galleries did a, a wonderful exploration into that. Mm. If we look at the extraction of wood, for instance, it's one of those industries where something is going wrong and uh, things might be better changed uh, before it's too late. And other industries that design profits so much from uh, are actually causing the own destruction of design. So uh, in the end, is it utopian or is it hope? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's funny because we had an interview with the Forbes magazine from Czech Republic. And the question, because of the audience of that magazine, was very much about, okay, but how can companies embrace this idea of going beyond the human? But if we do not do that, I mean, there's no economy without, uh, mm. without the environment. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose it's a kind of question which assumes that the status quo can be maintained, whereas obviously climate crisis and so on is, is saying, no, the, the, current, the current situation cannot go on. That is not an option either. It, it, it's, <laughs> maybe utopian isn't quite right, but this, it's, it's similarly far-fetched to imagine that business can just continue as usual. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I think that uh, there are a number of designers, and again, uh, I think of Forma Fantasma because they're so visible, of course, but uh, that they are contaminating the purely industrial design and commercial world with their thinking. And companies are starting to realize, maybe for marketing reasons, that it is important to embrace this shift. Uh, and it's maybe a trend for them, but uh, they're probably realizing that it's also something that is valuable for their own sake, for their own survival. So I don't know, of course, as researchers and curators, we're more into uh, looking at the future to guide us in, in the present from a yeah, theoretical perspective, of course. But we're also basing our research on people that are activating in the present these changes. And again, I go back to Fernando because we had a wonderful and, and, and in-depth conversation about his work and what he's doing with uh, his, the pieces that he produces in Mexico is not just going with the season uh, and replanting and so on, but it's really sustaining the local communities in a region that is uh, affected largely also by rural exodus. So by creating an economy there, he's keeping people there, rebuilding knowledge, rebuilding techniques, building new tools, building new techniques. So it's also a, a, a way to say that designers can be uh, political uh, activists, they can be uh, political and, and, and economic agents in very small uh, environments. And it's something that he said very beautifully was that in his work, he doesn't want to work with more than 150 people. He want to know everybody who's involved in the chain of production of his pieces. And um, we tend to, to work in the same way in our own field with Laura. We tend to work uh, side-based. 
where we can understand and know the, the environment uh, we develop a project in. And maybe that's something that is missing. This link to the, to the soil is something that has uh, been missing and we should regain. I mean, we said right at the start that you've been working around this theme and in this area for a number of years. The School of Phytocenter Design is is coming towards the end of its run as we speak. It started in late July. We're now late August and it's about to close. What have you learned from doing the school? Has there been anything which has changed your thinking around this area? And what would you like its legacy to be? How will you continue what you've discovered during this period in the next stages of your work? Um, I think we'll need to live here to process what we've lived. Uh, a summer school is something very intensive. We're here from 8 a.m. to uh, 10 p.m., so it's very dense days. <laughs> um, we're living and eating together with, uh, with everybody, the tutors, the participants, the museum team. Um, what we've learned is that there's a, a great desire to understand how... Well, we're in a museum context, so here it's very much based in the museum context. And what we've learned that there is that there's a, a big desire in understanding how we can change uh, the way design is showcased in a museum and which stories should be told in a, in a museum. So that's from a, an outer perspective regarding the participants that took place in the program. Uh, personally, with Laura, I think that what we learn is that every time we do workshops, because now we're even not just, we didn't just conceive the program, we're doing one workshop on our own uh, about curating change that was the title is that um, it's great to have a dynamic where over a week you have people come from all over the world and thinking about the common subject sharing common ex uh, different experiences for a common goal and uh, I think that by teaching I mean it's not formal teaching but by sharing our experiences we're learning so much from the others uh, and that's super valuable of course uh, and then yeah, I think it's an open question to reflect on when we're back to reality. Uh, but it, it has certainly been an interesting experience. And what I find very interesting, at least here in this context, I mean, there are a number of summer schools, but is that here you're really also facing the, the limits of intervening in a museum context in the sense that we're intervening in rooms where there's historical pieces from the collection of the museum. Uh, we have to respect the buildings. It's, we are in an historical site. There are visitors coming by and you have to interact with them, trying to, to explain them why you're here, why what you're doing is so weird compared to the beautiful historical palace you are operating in. And um, it kind of creates these tensions where you have to provide an answer or provide, a, yeah, or create a conversation. And there was a, I read a book by this priest in Berlin that mentioned that when there are conflicts, that's where the space for conversation happens. And that's where possible solutions, new solutions are created. And I think that this tension that is created here between the, yeah, the environment where we are operating and the ideas we're working on, this tension is very interesting and very fertile for uh, yeah, new ideas to be developed. Perfect. Olivier, thank you for joining us on The Crit and good luck with the rest of the school. Thank you for having us. And uh, yeah. Thank you again and good luck and bye-bye from the rest then. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but a final bit of news and um, a, a sad bit of news. India, this is possibly your last episode of The Crit. Possibly my last episode of The Crit, which is very upsetting. I mean, we need to actually tot up how many I've done. Well, I've been here. Four score. <laughs> Four score and ten. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm moving on. I've, I've got a new job, but um, leaving I'll be very sad to go. Or you'll be much missed. You become the third co-host of the Crit. I have seen off. Yeah, no, this is uh, your survival. I survive. <laughs> I'm like I'm like Lyme disease of the crit. I just flare up continually. They can never get rid of me. It's the crit cockroach. No one can outlast him. <laughs> so um, we thought we'd flag that up. It possibly means we might not have an episode next month. Just as we um, just as we look at what what the flipping heck we're going to do. Uh, but there might be, there might be an episode, so stay posted, it will it will appear 
in your feed wherever you get your podcast from when it's ready but bear with us in the interim and um India, yes. the crit, the crit. Thanks you for your service. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And also, uh, never fear. Next month we will have uh, Desenio thirty six out on newsstands. It's uh, the last issue I've worked on, and it's um, it's really great. I'm really excited about this one. It's got yeah. a great cover. <laughs> In the interim, while you wait for us to come back, if you would like to stay in touch with us, you can do so by emailing us on thecrypt at desenojournal.com. Uh, you can also find us on social media at at desenojournal. And do have a look at our website, desenojournal.com. I'm saying desenojournal.com an awful lot, but that is the address. Uh, check us out to see what events we have coming up at London Design Festival in September. We will have all news up there. And this episode was recorded at Convene, 22 Bishopsgate. And thanks so much to everyone at Convene. They're so kind and they're really supportive. Um, if you want to find out more about Convene's workplaces in London and uh, also further afield, you can find them at convene.com. Yeah, so farewell, Crit viewers. Farewell, India. Oliver and Jaws. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt. It was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block. It was produced by Evie Hall and edited by Evie Hall and Lara Chapman. All music for The Crypt is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo is by Leonard Rothweiser. <laughs>